0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Dr. Shetra warta Liker on the impact of race and culture in attachment therapy.
1: Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am super excited about the interview I have today. It's going to be a real treat for you guys um, to hear from the person I'll be speaking with today. And I'm going to give you a little background about her. First of all, of course, her name is Dr. Shetra Wurda-Liker. And she is going to be speaking about attachment security and the impact of race and racism on attachment security. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Wurda-Liker. I'm going to share her bio. Since taking my first psychology class in high school, I knew this was the field which I was meant to work in. When the Columbine High School tragedy occurred so close to home, I became dedicated to working with youth and families who experienced trauma, and this connected strongly with my other areas of passion, including adoption and bullying. So obviously, Dr. Warda Liker is in Colorado. She was adopted from India as an infant and so understands firsthand what it's like to struggle with issues of race, identity, societal expectations, and family relationships. She then went on to adopt her son from Ethiopia. And so her awareness of the multifaceted and complex world of adoption grew. So here we have someone transracially adopted And then also adopting transracially. I just think this is like such an important voice for us to be hearing. So she has now worked in the mental health field for over a decade. She's a licensed psychologist in Colorado. Uh, Her, uh, practice is called Beyond Words and she shares that she believes every individual who visits her office has a unique story to share and she desires to have them share their story in a safe, caring, and supportive space. She believes the therapeutic relationship is built on trust and collaboration and goes beyond language to a place of genuine understanding and hence the name Beyond Words. Dr. Orta Liker has training in many different clinical models, EMDR, play therapy, TBRI, TheraPlay. Uh, she's also a psychologist, uh, licensed psychologist who does psychological assessments. So I'm looking forward to sharing this interview with all of you. And we'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, here we are for part two of our podcast uh, with Dr. Werder Liker in talking about the impact of race and racism on attachment security and and how we form attachments and and then how we have to have safety. Bulby said, "A safe haven and a secure base is how you form attachment." <laughs> so, you know, how do we? Uh, think about that and talk about that. So great to be continuing this conversation. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes. So the one thing before we get into uh, resources, practical application, and, and I think that's so important to not just say what's wrong, but say what we can do. Right. The one thing that we didn't talk about in part one is current culture. Because mm-hmm. this is coming up a lot. I'm seeing with um, uh, transracial adoptees and international adoptees as they are, they consider themselves immigrants. You know, I even think some parents don't even think that goes together. So, a few words of overall culturally what's going on and this impact on on feeling safe, heard, seen, understood. Yeah, Uh,
2: honestly, sadly, I think it's terrifying. Um, if I had to put it in a word, for for so many of my clients, for, for myself, my son, I mean, there are so many things happening in the climate of our world today that, that send that message not only of being othered and being different in some way, but that we are valued less and we matter less and our lives are, are not as important as somebody who is white versus brown-skinned, and so it I see this coming up in sessions often, and it, it has been now for a couple of years, this fear, especially with international adoptees, of being sent back to their birth country. and, and it's Did not- you
1: consider yourself an immigrant as an adoptee? Was there a point in time where that was suddenly a light bulb to you, or did you always consider it that way, or what? Yeah, I mean, I, I really,
2: it was something that as a child I didn't think much about, um, it, there were times when it would come up in, in difficult ways, like for instance, you know, I remember sitting in a sixth grade class and we were talking about the president and different parts of the government, and someone made the comment to me, like, Oh, I guess you'll never get to be president since you were, weren't born here. Um, so, so, those kinds of things where it, it gets pointed out um, and you, you sort of just try and brush it off, but um, it, it hurts. And, and so, really, it was sort of in the back of my mind all the time, but not something that felt really prominent until 2016, honestly, is, is when it really started to be something even younger kids in my sessions, five or six, would be talking about this because it was something where the topic had been really emboldened to something that people would talk about, kids would talk about, use as ammunition against each other and teasing and bullying. Um, so that's, that's something that I mean, in the culture today, it, it's a very valid fear for adoptees to, so you've,
1: get, seen, a spike, you've adoptees. seen a significant spike in that, in kids. Absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, I mean, within the adoption community, overall, I feel like it's a, a fairly close knit community as far as kind of understanding what's going on in the world and how it's impacting other adoptees. And I mean, there, there are plenty of, of stories of um, international adoptees who have been deported as adults because their paperwork wasn't in place or they, you know, so there, there's this other aspect of just the legality behind it if adoptive parents are following through on all of the paperwork. And that's something that I think a lot of therapists don't ask parents about, but I think it's important to know if they really completed the citizenship citizenship process with their kids.
1: Yes, that's a good thing. Like anyone listening, you know, adoptive parent, therapist, social workers, counselors, whoever, know that this paperwork piece. Like, look up what is needed and be sure you are bringing this up because there's a lot of denial or something around this. Right. Well, there's this, again,
2: it's sort of that, that sense of privilege of, oh, it can't really happen to us. It'll be fine. But, it, you know, it, having a social security card, having a passport, those are not enough. You have to have an actual certificate of citizenship. And and the truth is, I think in the environment now, it still feels like that may not be enough. And and that's where a lot of that fear comes from, that the color of our skin is going to dictate our safety.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think you know, the point of having a secure base and a safe haven, you know, Mm -hmm. we're seeing, you know, so many ways that this impinges on that or prevents that. Um, What are some resources, ideas? I know that you have tips for parents, um, in terms of talking about these issues and even for therapists too. I mean, I think some of the things that that you talk about for that, I know in some of Chaddock's consultation with you talking about, I mean, this idea of bringing this into the room, you know, Mm -hmm. we think about that with lots of other issues, but then when it comes to bringing something about race into the room, it's like, Oh no, we don't, we don't want to do that. We don't Mm want to talk about that. Um, so what are some of your ideas that you can share with us about this?
2: So I I always use the Mr. Rogers quote, what's mentionable is manageable. Um, because I, I think it. I that, love it. That's key, right? I mean, when anything we're talking about with kids, that's tough. But when it comes to race, especially, I, I really try and reinforce that point that no matter how awkward or uncomfortable the conversation about race or racism might be, yes. if you have that conversation with someone, they're going to feel safer with you. They, they can trust that you're somebody who's safe to talk to you about these difficult things. And so it, it has to be okay to talk about. And, and that means that a lot of times, you know, as people of color, we've learned not to talk about it because it makes our white counterparts uncomfortable. And so we don't bring it up, and people think, well, if they're not bringing it up, it must not be an issue, it must not be a big deal to them or something Oh Yes,
1: yes, that's a common thought,
2: isn't it? Yeah, and that's why, first of all, teaching kids the language is important to understand how they can talk about race and racism, they have the words. But also, we need to invite that conversation for them. We can't expect them in sessions, and even teenagers or, or adult adoptees of color, we can't expect them to talk to their parents or to talk to their therapists or other professionals about this without an invitation that lets them know it's it's safe to do so. And, I mean, I think about even sort of how you and I became connected initially through Facebook and that, you know, I was in the attachment Facebook group for quite a long time, but never brought up race until I saw that you were in the transracial adoption Facebook group and, and we're starting to learn some of these things. And I thought, okay, Karen's a safe person. I can bring this up in the attachment group and she won't shut it down. She won't dismiss it. And I felt very supported and, and that's what needs to happen is that that invitation needs to be there for someone to say, Hey, I'm safe and we can talk about this.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, just, I love, I'm going to read one of your, your tip <laughs> sheets here just because I you so, good. so you have the top five needs of, of transracial adoptees. And you've been talking about this parents who recognize their own racial bias, mm-hmm. uh, biases, plural parents who comfortably and frequently talk about race and racism. As you were just saying, like, we need to interject this, not wait it to be brought up, um, parents who stand up for them, and I think, you know, this idea that instead being told, oh, that really didn't happen, or they didn't mean it that way, like, that's not helpful, right, Right. that's a big part, there's many ways,
2: Yeah. 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 That's, that's that makes sense, essentially, if your child is saying, and I see that most often in the classroom relationship that someone will say, I feel like my teacher is treating me differently because of my skin color and parents are afraid to go there. So it, it has to be about believing your child, trusting them.
1: Yes. And then you have also parents who understand the importance of daily racial mirroring, as we were talking about. It's not just You know, we go to the restaurant once a year and, you know, you, or something like this or the culture camp and parents who help them build relationships with other adoptees. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think that those pointers are, are, are so important or, or not pointers exactly, but clearly saying these are the needs and how are you going to meet these needs as a parent? Right. Right.
2: Yeah. And there are definitely ways to begin doing that. And I I think it's tough for a lot of parents and, and even, you know, professionals to hear that the best way to do that is to live in a diverse community where your child is naturally going to receive those racial mirrors without forcing the relationship. and what happens sometimes is I'll hear parents say, well, we have, you know, another adoptee who lives down the block and they're, they're the same race as our child. And, you know, on paper, it's like they should get along. They're the same age and kind of similar experiences, but their personalities just may not mesh. And so it becomes as, well, we don't have anybody else now to to try and connect with. Or,
1: or, you know, what I've also heard a lot is, well, we adopted two kids (laughs) from so-and-so. So, so You know, yeah. how could this be an issue when they're living with somebody mm-hmm. in their household as a sibling? How can this be an issue? What do you say to that?
2: <laughs> I, so I like to bring in the relationship between my brother and myself sometimes because he's also adopted from India. Um, and we're not biologically related, but it, it's funny because we are about as different as two people can be, right? I mean, we, we get along great in some ways, but like for me, you know, adoption is my world. Like that's what I do every day and it's what I'm interested in exploring and learning about for myself and others. And he's kind of like, eh, adoption, whatever, you know, like, <laughs> I don't need to know all that. And, and so and I hear that so often from siblings will be in here talking to me about like, I wish I could talk about this with my brother or sister, because I feel like they would get it. But that that person just isn't in the same place. And right. so yeah, we can't assume. I mean, I sort of jokingly, I'll sort of ask, you know, it's pointed, but it's joking, <laughs> like, well, do you get along with every white person you meet? you know right and so it's it's that same thing you can't get along with somebody just because you happen to share a skin color or a birth culture And um, there has to be that organic way to build relationships and that only happens when there are many opportunities for that yes so so moving to diverse areas is is the best way to do that and i I'll admit, I mean, those are some of the most rewarding experiences I've had as a psychologist. The clients that I've worked with and we've talked about these things and the families will move to more diverse areas in the city for the sake of their their children of color. Mm -hmm. And it's so powerful and I'm actually amazed at how many times that results in very little therapy being needed afterwards because such a sense of safety has been created.
1: Wow. And
2: dialogue. And these kids feel seen and heard and valued. And and not in spite of their skin color because colorblindness, but because of their skin color that their now, family is doing this.
1: I would imagine you get quite a bit of pushback from some parents when you suggest yeah. that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, some. I, I think I'm fortunately in the space right now where I think I'm vocal enough about these things that. People who are completely opposed to what I say or believe in maybe sort of avoid me, which is they're not, not going
1: to sign thing. up. <laughs> with, but with for a therapy with Dr. Right, like, right,
2: right. She's going to give us a for sale sign, and <laughs> yeah. I mean, I yeah, it's tough because I I do feel for their kids, and I I try not to scare people off essentially with those really big requests and recommendations, but. The, the people who are coming to me and really want to understand how to do what's best for their children of color, I mean, the, they're appreciative of it because we, we work through it together. We talk about how to support that transition and and how it's going to affect the whole family. And, and it's beautiful to see, you know, it's not just benefiting the child, it's benefiting everyone in the family. And that's what it should be, that you're on this journey together. You're all benefiting from this move and living amongst greater diversity.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you you talked about, and we talked about microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Maybe defining that and sharing if examples that a child could bring home about that, and how maybe the the, the parent or the therapist could best handle that. Mm-hmm. Maybe first define the term. You know, even well, though we've been talking about yeah. it, make sure everyone's yeah, on the same
2: microaggressions, and they can happen in any any type of oppressed community, but when we're talking about racial microaggressions, we're talking about the covert forms of racism that occur. So not, you know, most people think of racism as being these really overt things. They think of the KKK or, or racial slurs being said to somebody, but microaggressions are more covert. And, and in my Opinion really do a lot more damage long-term because there's not this really obvious Concrete thing that happened that people can agree upon was an act of racism Impressions mm. happen and they're questions like where are you from or what are you and most people would say well? That's you know, that's a harmless question. What's the big deal But when you're asked that question over and over and over again, you feel othered. You feel like you're constantly being reminded that you don't belong, that you're different in some way. And so it's this idea of being a perpetual foreigner, essentially. Right. And and so those types of things that, that come up, those small reminders of your skin color um, or even, you know, a lot of times I'll hear that, you know, well, you're, you're really cute for a black guy, or you're really, um, you're, you're pretty good at basketball for an Asian girl, or you, so those, those backhanded type of compliments, like, oh, you must be really good at computers since you're Asian, can you help me with this, this homework mm-hmm. assignment? Mm-hmm. Those are things that, again, it plays into stereotypes, and it leaves people feeling like they've been objectified, and like they don't have uh, an identity in the world outside of what other people assume or expect of them based on their appearance. And so those kinds of things very easily get pushed to the side as, oh, it's no big deal. You're being too sensitive or you can't take a joke. But those things are painful. They cause psychological damage long-term.
1: And and I guess I am thinking as you're talking about um, also even more covert than that. Like maybe just the way people look at you or, you know, um, the, that you're passed over in a restaurant when you came in three or four people ago or, um, yeah there's so many, the nonverbals are
2: incredibly difficult to to get other people to see what's happening, essentially other than other people of color. Um, you know, there there have been so many times when I have walked into a place and people have cut in front of me in line, and it seems like there's this assumption of, oh, she's she's foreign. She doesn't really know what's going on here. I'm in a hurry. I can, you know, she probably doesn't speak English. I mean, they don't say any of those things, but their their movements, the, the atmosphere of them, the way that they go about it, I can feel that sense of they, they feel like I'm less than in some way, like I'm not understanding the concept of what's happening. And so those kinds of things are even looks like it, you know, as people are wondering sort of does she speak English? Is she somebody I can talk to or, or ask a question of? And I mean, those kinds of things constantly happen. And, and that's when I talk about that sixth sense that people of color have. It, it's something you can feel almost automatically at times when you walk into a room the atmosphere of the room shifts slightly, and it may be a look, a slight body movement, something like that. But these covert things that are happening have a huge impact. And I hate—I always hate that they've been called microaggressions because, because you think they're so yeah, big. Macro, the impact.
1: Because yeah, because I I've not heard someone say, I think these things can have greater impact. Not directly, I mean, maybe inferred, but I think these micro, which we don't think of, mm-hmm. it can have greater impact than these blatant racial slurs or something, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the idea that, well, everyone's going to agree with you that that was wrong. You know, right. people aren't going to say, oh, you're imagining it, or that didn't mm-hmm. happen, or you're being too sensitive, or they didn't mean it that way, or whatever.
0: Yeah,
2: that that's where it becomes kind of, I feel like connected to attachment and that if you feel like the people around you believe you, trust you, support you, are validating that experience and want to help you move through it, you don't feel isolated in it. You have that secure base. You have that safe haven and people to talk to about it and, and then you can move on. But when you're in it by yourself and no one else believes it or sees it and there's gaslighting going on, there's no way to feel a sense of security with those people.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have to, um, I'm trying to think how to articulate this. I guess what I've started, I, I guess my own personal share for me personally, I've just mm-hmm. started deciding if a person of color says it, that's just it.
2: Mm-hmm. Like,
1: I'm, going to take it that that happens, that that's real, I guess I don't feel like I'm in a position to really judge whether that's real or not. I mean, that's really the only way I've been able to make sense of, because I admittedly, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I I, I remember very distinctly walking into a Kohl's with, um, someone Asian and them saying somebody they're looking at me funny and I remember inside Mm -hmm. thinking gosh like no they're like no you know well that's probably not happening and again it's just this lack of awareness or thinking no I know better and that's not really happening and we have to override that in our brain right it, it, like I
2: say, that self-reflection piece is so key to really, it, to dig into the biases that we have. Fortunately,
1: I didn't say that out loud. <laughs> but I, I mean, just being really honest. Yeah, yeah. And,
2: um, and that's really a big part of it too, though. I think we have to realize you can't suddenly become anti-racist overnight. No. You, you can't no. become an ally overnight. This is a lifelong learning process. And I saw a beautiful quote the other day, just this idea of anti-racism is about continuing to acknowledge your mistakes and learn and grow and, and be vulnerable around that, as opposed to suddenly like, I'm anti-racist, I'm done, I've learned it all, I know what's going on. I mean, that's, I think people think like, I'm woke now, it's good, and right? everything's all better. But you can, you can still perpetrate racism. I mean, I can still perpetrate racism. People of color can be racist as well. And so I think part of it is really being aware of this as a societal system of oppression and not just individual interactions too. Yes. But yeah, that, that work around our biases has to be, has to be explored.
1: Yes. Yes. So as we are winding down here, mm-hmm. I want people to know about your website, your workshops. I know you're, you're putting a list of therapists together, correct? Um yeah,
2: I have a, a list of adoptee therapists. Share
1: right? everything right now that you oh have God. to support me for <laughs> really this have. topic.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm we really have really time kind of. left
1: for you to share because I know you've done major work in this area and we're all so grateful.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share a little bit about it. I um so yeah, one of the things I'm proudest of is I created a national directory of adoptee therapists. And so therapists who work with adoptive families, um, licensed people who work with adoptive families who are also adoptees themselves. And it's the range of people who are adopted internationally and transracially and domestic and kinship and foster care. But um, I'm so proud of this list because I, I do feel like there is that unspoken bond and unspoken understanding that comes along with um, being an adoptee and working with adoptees and and mm-hmm. we have insights to share and things we can articulate that help parents understand their children better. and um, I, I think you know not to say that somebody who is is not an adoptee can't work with this population, but I think there's just a very unique type of relationship. so so that directory is there, and I'm always getting more submissions, more people that
1: is, is like, are some of them doing um, online like so so maybe if you don't I mean, I know we have things about you have to be licensed in the the state yeah. that you're in, but I mean, could you know, somewhere like Texas that's a big state you know are some of them even if you're not near them are some or any of them doing online stuff yeah
2: absolutely so on the page it lists the person's contact information what type of services they offer what they specialize in the age range um, what their adoption background is so all that information is there and um, you know, there's also some people on there are, offer coaching nationally, so they aren't necessarily restricted by the license. Yes, lessons.
1: that's a very good idea. And they could even, you as a therapist, I mean, I know what I've done is I've asked people to, to help me and consult, you know, like we had you consult with Chaddock. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, you could at least do that, you know, there's avenues of doing this. Yeah,
2: I've even, you know, in one unique circumstance, I thought was really great. The therapist and I, um, she was in New York, and we had consulted on cases. And she really wanted one of her client's parents to hear the things I had to say. And so I actually called into one of their sessions. Yes, and exactly. That's exactly and so, what I'm imagining. Good. Yeah. So, yes. so I think there are a lot of ways to consult and bring the adoptive voice. And yes voices of people into those sessions I
1: just don't I hear so often well there's no one near me like that so I'm Mm -hmm. trying to like put plant the ideas that there's we can be be creative with that yeah 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 Yeah. and other resources you'd like to Mm -hmm. share Um, Yeah. So I
2: offer a lot of webinars, both for parents and professionals. Um, I have a couple of uh, books available for adoptees. So yes, I love that. Talk about that. (laughs) So um, recently I created an adoptee self-reflection journal. And so it's for teens and adults and it has prompts that kind of offer some some thoughts about um, everything ranging from like biological family and adoption and, and feelings there to what it's like to celebrate birthdays or holidays or anniversaries um, what it's like to see adoptees portrayed in the media just just all kinds of, of things there to create space for self reflection and so got a lot of great feedback on that. It's, it's basically a lot of the questions I wish I would have had someone ask me when I was a teenager to help me feel like I can start to build my identity in a way that feels like I don't have to suppress that part of myself. Right.
1: And, and Shaitra, they can get those on your website?
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's on the website to order. And the other one is the empowered workbook for kids. And that is um, ways to respond to adoption questions. Right. So, um, yeah, when it comes to adoption, for whatever reason, it seems like people lose that filter for tact when they ask questions. And, and so this is just a way to, to offer some options of ways to respond because it, it takes practice and sort of I encourage families to role play that or to role play that in sessions. Like when someone says this or asks this, how do you want to respond? Let's use this workbook and come up with some ideas.
1: Love it. Well, just uh, before we close, uh, your actual website address. Yeah, it's www.growbeyondwords.com. Okay, great. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing your time and your expertise with me, with our listeners. You truly have a a unique voice out there with being an adoptee, an adoptive parent, and and trans. I mean, it's just, I don't know. Is there anyone else like you? (laughs)
2: There are there are some of us. We're finding each other. We're okay. we're unicorns, but we're out there. Yes.
1: Well, thank yeah. you so much because yeah. you just are bring such rich richness um, to this conversation because of the layering of your personal experience. So thank,
2: thank you, and thank you so much for for inviting me to join us, honored, and and really appreciate all the work that you're doing in this field with attachment and adoption, and and to learn from from us adoptees and from people of color too. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchatik.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchatik.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.